0: Folks, episode three of the Summit Up podcast for the month of November 2022. In this episode, as always, we cover our key takeaways from the monthly Cyber AB Town Hall. This month featuring bonus question and answer time. Uh, we still have some thoughts on uh, the topics that are covered in the Town Hall. And we also cover the Cyber AB CMMC Ecosystem Summit, the first ever event for the Cyber AB CMMC Ecosystem that happened in Washington, D.C., go into detail of some of our takeaways from the sessions at that event and how they relate back to some of the questions and topics covered in the town hall. We also talk about a GAO report that came out in November that goes into detail about how the DOD and the Defense Industrial Base handle cyber incident reporting and some of the not-so-great statistics, the relationship between those findings and last month's findings from DOD's Dibcac assessors about the poor implementation rates of requirements in 800-171. Try to connect the dots between those two sets of findings. And we also go over the anniversary of Executive Order 13556, Back in 2010, the executive order that created the Big Bang moment for the federal CUI program and all the individual agency CUI programs that we've come to know and love today. And the reason why that was relevant is that in November, we stumbled across some publicly available overmarked CUI available on DoD websites in direct conflict with the specific guidance of the executive order. We go into details about how we found it, what that means, and what it implies for the future rollout of CUI as it relates to CMMC certifications and contractors who need to make it through that process. Uh, As always, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to or watching this podcast, and please give us a rating and some feedback if you'd like us to talk about different topics or if you enjoy what we're doing. Thanks. All right. The AB Town Hall for November was 90 minutes long. I don't know if anyone noticed they had some extra time on the town hall specifically for answering questions, which I mean, you know, round of applause for the extra time for answering questions. I think that's a great idea. I think I speak for everyone. When I think it's a wonderful idea that we spent more time answering questions. What a coincidence! I mean, that's oh. uh, it was it was great to see. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I like
1: the clarity that was provided. You know, as we were in the countdown, it was like the end of the year meeting, obviously for for the town hall. So there's not one in December, a- and the countdown. The yeah, other, it looks like we only got three questions left unanswered and stuff like that. So <laughs> this is the transparency and communication yeah. that we've been asking for this all along. Great. It, it was like, great. I think it. Yeah.
0: Was, it, it Listen, it's always there's never enough time for questions on any webinar ever. No. So anytime you bake in extra time for questions, uh it's always a good thing. I mean, we fundamentally changed the format of CS2, our cloud security and compliance series, coming up March seventh and eighth, Huntsville, Alabama. Everybody, check it out. Rocket City. Um we we fundamentally changed the layout of the entire conference specifically to bake in an extra fifteen minutes of questions for every session because there's just never enough time. It's like a, it's like a fundamental law of the universe that there's that there's not enough time. there aren't even even on sessions that are only Q and A dedicated. There's not enough time. Like there will there's it's it's just a trade off. But anyways, questions there's,
1: always spurn like, other questions, right? So it, it'll always steamroll into something else. But of course, the, the yeah. fact is is that you appreciate the extra effort that was made this it was month. great. Yep, it was great, outstanding.
0: There are very Baby few steps webinars, the bus. Very few webinars and organizations that that will do that. So. Hats off to the AB for doing that. Also, uh, long-time meme and second second mystery of the universe. What is the background on Kyle Gingrich's wall, uh, the director of the Keiko? Um, she has this mystery wall that people who, uh, longtime viewers of the AB Town Hall have wondered, uh, what is the background? Uh, every the, the, the most common explanation was that it was Carpet. Look, it
1: looks like carpet. It, it looks,
0: it does. If you look, it looks like carpet, um, but it is not carpet. Apparently, it is a uh, uh, a, a very tasteful, uh, very small uh, snakeskin pattern with metal art hanging on the wall. Uh, but the resolution on the camera isn't quite good enough to be able to make that out. So for months and months, um, people have thought that <laughs> that Kyle's wall was covered in carpet. But we put that one. To rest, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, we so now, carpet
1: wall, carpet wall is a boss move. A snakeskin wall, even bigger boss move, my guy,
0: for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's they're both power moves. Um, they both make a statement. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but at long last, uh, the debate has been settled. Uh, we got extra questions. We, we got the the question I was the most concerned about: what is on the wall? Uh, we got the answer to it. But they covered a bunch of stuff. In the town hall, like always. So we're just going to probably run through the the highlights from it uh, and then uh, we'll link to the town hall where everybody can uh, check out all the differences. The first one is the Joint Surveillance Program, right? So the the voluntary assessment program that we've been hearing so much about the Joint Surveillance Program is called the Joint Surveillance Program because it is a DIBCAC high assessment. So an in-person assessment uh, verifying your implementation of 800-171 in accordance with the assessment procedures in 800-171A, but it is done jointly with a set of dibcac assessors, DOD assessors and assessors from a C3PAO, the uh, assessment organizations that will normally be running CMMC assessments when that is fully up and running. So a joint assessment under the DIBCAC high approach. Now, what's interesting is that uh, the alleged uh, way that this is supposed to work is that when you get your DIBCAC high through Joint Surveillance Voluntary Assessment Early Adopter Assessment, when the rule comes out, you will, um, according to DoD, pending rulemaking specifics, be grandfathered in and receive your CMMC Level Two certification. So. Although a DibCAC high does not result in an overall pass, fail, certified, not certified decision, you end up with a score that is a high confidence score calculated according to the DOD assessment methodology, five points, three points, one point control scoring. Uh, There's supposed to be some magic that happens uh, with the language and the rule that carries you forward to a CMMC, Level two assessment. The details of how that works uh, and how upset people get and you know don't like it in the rule and all that we all have that remains to be seen. But that's the program that they're running in uh, in the interim. So there have been five of those, uh, and apparently there's been about fifty companies that have applied to it. So uh, for those companies that are interested, you're supposed to reach out and coordinate with a C3PAO on the AB marketplace and. Uh, and let them know that you're interested in a voluntary joint surveillance assessment, and they will help get things coordinated with DibCAC, which uh, we have heard through friends in the ecosystem who are going through their DibCAC high assessments to BC3PAOs, joint surveillance, things like that, um, that the DibCAC teams on their joint surveillance assessments are quite large because there's apparently a, Uh, a whole group of new DIBCAC assessors going through training uh, during these uh, ongoing DIBCAC high assessments. So hopefully that will start to alleviate the constraints that we're hearing about on the capacity of DIBCAC's ability to push through both C3PAO assessments and joint surveillance DIBCAC high assessments.
1: It, It could be some sort of preparation too. If you think about it, the, the CMMC level three um, mm-hmm. assessment is going to be like a Delta added on to the level two assessment that you get from a C3 PAO. So obviously some sort of uh, of that workload probably is going to be absorbed by these new people that they're training and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah, that's um, right. That's a good point. And then the other thing is, is that uh, opening one of the, the, the things that Matt Travis talked about in the town hall was the, the possibility of with this new expanded capacity at DIPCAC, that in the coming year, maybe they would take on some more of these joint surveillance assessments mm-hmm. leading up to, to to roles being into, you know, more contracts. assessors,
0: more assessors is always going to be better because it'll be more capacity in the assessment ecosystem. Um, so that's nice to hear that uh, there are assessors going through training on the dibcac side. When you hear for people who've gone through these assessments, only 50 companies have applied to the joint surveillance program, which is probably not the numbers that uh, DOD wants to hear. Um, and that's, you know, prob- that's a much bigger issue of how do you incentivize companies to do it early before the rule finally comes out? There's various ways to do that, but um, increasingly, you know, they're, they're throwing people at the assessment constraint problem. So we'll see if that starts to uh, increase the numbers. Uh, yeah yeah, just addressing it i mean
1: it's it's perfect that they're they're just you know touching base on on the things that need to like clean up in certain areas
0: yeah so hopefully we hear you know we'll have some folks from dibcac at uh cs2 march 7th and 8th Huntsville, alabama everybody uh hopefully we'll hear some updated numbers for (laughs) you like that you like that plug uh so hopefully we'll hear uh updated numbers for the size of the dibcac assessment team as a result of all the training that's currently going on now um, okay, so something else they talked about at the town hall, the CCP exam is live. So the initial certification exam uh, that you need to get in order to start your journey towards being a certified CMMC assessor, a lead assessor, wherever role you want to play in the ecosystem, even just general familiarity with how CMMC works, how the ecosystem works, how an assessment works, whether you are an implementer or uh, want to be an assessor or for whatever reason, um, the CCP exam is live. The badges are live. The application workflow that visualizes all the steps that you need to take to get through the process of registering and taking the exam and finishing all uh, all of the paperwork and things that you need in order to get done is live. Uh, and the official CCA training, the next level of training after CCP, uh, that training is out. I think one provider has it. Uh, the application workflow for that one is supposed to be here in short order. Uh, the badges, everything else is supposed to be, I think, according to the town hall done like by the end of this month. So moving into next year, all of the workflow, badges, training, exams, and everything for the KCO side of CMMC training in the ecosystem should be up and running, which uh, you just recently took the CCP training. Yeah, uh, any, any any thoughts so far? You're still you're still going through, right? No,
1: it's done. I completed it this week oh, actually. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, ended with
0: a uh, a run
1: through of every assessment objective and every practice within you know CMMC I mean- level two. And, yeah. and to have it, you know, like, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have it from the DIPCAC assessor or a former DIPCAC assessor's perspective. Um, so, like, obviously, you get that. And, like, even, you know, in something that I've been, you know, CMMC or, you know, like 800-171, something that I've been digging into since, you know, 7012, yeah. is basically, like, now you're like, oh, different perspectives here and there and, like, differing opinions. And there was some back and forth that was interesting. But the, uh, the, the cool thing about it is, is that, now we're just waiting for the process so I can obviously take my test and get badge. Yeah. Um, but those of you that have taken the test, like yourself um, and other people that we that we work with and that we know in the ecosystem, um, they can actually take the CCA. Well, they could up until the 30th of November, take the CCA beta and then get awarded that.
0: Yeah, so, well, I, I don't know what the end date on the CCA. I think the CCA beta is, I'd have to double check. It was it was I, November 30th. Yeah, i have to double check and see. I think it's some it's, it's shifted for some people and not for okay. others. But, you know, the big takeaway for the, the real core of both exams, and we t- I think we talked about this on the last episode, is uh, for all of the wrinkles and warts of the CMMC program and its rollout and things like that, The one thing that sort of shines through all of it, regardless of people's opinion about what's going on, is that uh, NIST standards have corresponding assessment procedures documented for them. They are written down. It is a major advantage of NIST standards that how you verify if one of these controls is implemented has been documented and democratized. It's free, you don't have to pay to know what the assessment procedures are for these controls, which are often required, the long-standing problem has been that these are just democratized standards. There's no there's no associated credit, you know, accreditation or certification or any uh, setup to, uh, you know push people through that system, unless you were, for some reason, going through FedRAMP or an RMF federal, you know, making a system for the federal government, or you're working within the federal government, then you're using 853 controls all the time. So, you know, compared to ISO, compared to SOC, compared to CIS, compared to a bunch of other standards, you you have the other side of the coin, you have all the verification procedures. And so for the training to heavily focus on the assessment objectives in 800-171A, it keeps everybody on the same page because the questions that people should be asking themselves in a self-assessment, the questions that an assessor should be asking in a real third-party assessment, same questions stemming from the same document, stemming from the same training. So it's a double-edged sword because it's very granular and detailed and there's a lot of information, but it's not locked away in the assessor's head for you to be like surprised by it on assessment day, which is always, I'm always surprised there's not more, you know, I'm, I'm sure nobody's very happy about that in other assessment uh, and sort of standard setups, but the advantage of being focused on those assessment objectives on a NIST-based program uh, is significant. It's, significant. it's significant. It's a big leg up. I agree.
1: And then, so you you talk about the CCA and then we also were brought into the circle. Some, some we knew were spinning around, but uh, we were brought into the circle to learn that there are four new badge credential positions on their way to the cyberavi yeah. or from or from the Keiko, obviously, um, and, and you know, like obviously the the CMMC certified instructor. Mm-hmm. So that's going to replace the PI. So the, the whole thought process from the beginning was. All of these provisionals or uh, provisional assessors, provisional instructors, whatever it may be, all of those would eventually be replaced once they were certified positions. And what we're right. seeing is is the rollout of those in, in, a, in a progressive fashion: certified professional, certified assessor. Now yep. we have certified instructor. After that, authorized master instructor. No clue exactly what that entails, but I am intrigued, bro. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I am might, all yeah, I'm in.
0: Not, that might be. Uh, I don't. They didn't have a lot of details on that one. Maybe that's the one that is teaching the certified instructor class. Um, not sure exactly how it works, but yeah, we, we had this long standing setup of provisional certifications because you had to develop the exam and you had to develop the credentialing system and the badging and you had to stand up the Keiko and it, it takes time for those ecosystems to crystallize. And so how do you prime the pump, you know, chicken and egg pro, you know problem before all of that stuff is set up? So they created those provisional certifications And then folks had access to the beta exam. If they didn't make it, then they have to go through training just like everybody else. Um, But yeah, they also mentioned that there's the CMMC quality assurance professional, which I'm quite interested in to see how that role will play in terms of checking the validity and the quality of assessment results. Because um, there are a lot of people out there pitching services and solutions and um, promising the world and silver bullets and easy buttons uh that you know initially based off of their marketing kind of makes you a little curious about how that might play out in an assessment because a lot of you know what we tell everybody is doesn't matter who you're talking to talking to us talking to somebody else you should be asking them questions in the context of 800-171-a this this goes for everybody you know we've We've heard that, uh, you know, DOD offers tools and services to facilitate security. I think we'll have some more information on that in our next episode. Um, But DOD offers free tools and services to facilitate cybersecurity, what they call cybersecurity as a service. And when you hear that term, you think, oh, this is a holistic cybersecurity as a service. No, no, no. no. If you map it to 171A, it, it, it does satisfy some things, but it certainly does not alleviate you of the entire obligation. So even when you're talking to DOD, you have to sort of do your due diligence according to the procedures in 171A. So when you talk about the quality assurance professional, uh, I'll be very interested to see what role those folks play reviewing the assessment results.
1: Do you think that there'll be some sort of th- that position right there itself will be some sort of buffer between these organizations? Now, when I was consulting for for DIP OSCs, right, um, there was a lot of times where a
0: provider would tell us, look, we've got this relationship with a C3PAO. You're good to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that hopefully it is a buffer, right? Because, yeah. you know, there's there, everyone, you know, everyone's going to try and game the system. It's a certification system, right? I mean, that's just that's just sort of the natural bend of the universe once these things come out. So I, I don't know the details of the role. It'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, it maybe it'll be, you remember, the, you remember John Wick when, mm-hmm. uh, when the adjudicator shows up and like slides a coin, they slide their CQAP coin across the counter and they're like here to adjudicate your adjudication. So I don't oh, know. I don't know what role they'll play. I'm interested to find out more. Uh, and then the last um, uh, role that they have uh, coming out is their training for lead assessor. So you go through CCP, you go through CCA, you go through lead assessor, which lead assessor plays a very important role in a CMMC assessment. They are given tremendous autonomy and discretion uh, on making calls against the determination statements and assessment objectives in the assessment guide, which is just another way of labeling 80171 171 a So that training should be very interesting as well, because that's a real crux of success or Non success in a CMMC assessment. I re- I remember hearing when they were kicking the the cap, the CMMC assessment process guide, also a major part of the training, as as you're well aware. After that, yeah, um, was they were kicking the cap back and forth between the DoD and the AB. Uh, the rumor was that the 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 DoD was very careful about the words failure or the words like non compliant, and so then it was lots of words like not met and not satisfied or, you know, whatever, but like the F word is not, uh, popular in, uh, even in, even in like, apparently DOD circles that are saying this is a, 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 a criteria for contract award. They're like, we're not saying you're failing. Uh, you're just not passing. So, there's lots of that kind of back and forth of verbiage like, apparently in the development of the cap. So
1: it's a, it's a, it's a crippling word failure.
0: So like, I mean, obviously, it's, you it's know, a bit, yeah. I mean, there's thrown out there. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll, we'll see how the lead instructor training uh, phrases it from there because it kind of, it all kind of rests in the, or sorry, the lead assessors training because it all kind of rests in, in the eyes of the lead assessor. Okay. Right. So the next segment they had on the AB was their, their year in review. And, the headlines ran with this one, man. Uh, the ecosystem numbers have declined. So the number of RPs, the number of RPOs have gone down. And uh, and the, the headlines read, you know, ecosystem in, in chaos, the collapse of the ecosystem. I don't know if the actual percentage decrease was that intense, but it did go down. So look, if you look on the surface, right, look
1: on the surface of these numbers, you're like, yeah, that's that's less than last year. That's less than last year in certain areas. But you see a shift, right? I, I think we talked about this a little bit um, privately, you know. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that like, yeah, you do see a shift. So, so the numbers of RPs and RPOs is down, right? But the amount, you, you have almost eight times the amount of CMMC, prof- CCP's applications. So there's eight times the amount and it actually far supersedes... The amount of uh, rpos it's actually well it's close to the number of rps from last year right yeah so i feel like it's a shift of those people that were wanting to go from the rp training which we've talked about nothing terrible with it but it's not necessarily the most um well it's not as robust you've gone through both it's not yeah. as robust as ccp it's no, no, it, it's no much chance. much better than yeah. it used to be but it's not right. as
0: robust as ccp and rp is not a certification you don't have to take Uh, an exam in order to finish it. And so as a result, you could take, honestly, you could take the same rubric for the CCP training, and then call it RP. And it's still going to, uh, you know, be like a half step down in people's eyes, because it's not a cert, you didn't have to take a test. And so you know, it's great that you have that available, right, it makes capacity and it makes the uh, information, you know, accessible through another venue. Um, but you know, if if one is not a cert, then people are gonna you know always kind of treat it that way.
1: Yeah. So to go from three hundred and th- like uh, roughly like th- three hundred plus CCPs that applied last year mm-hmm. to twenty five hundred plus this year, I think the things that we got to look at are the positives in the in the numbers, right? The growth that we want to see within the ecosystem. Certified professionals is definitely one of those because you want more people that are have comprehension sure. of the topics, right? Yeah. And then the C3PAOs, right? Because we've always talked about, and you've talked about this in, in depth over the past couple of weeks, is that the amount of assessors and the amount of assessment organizations needs to drastically increase. It's been talked about the entire time, right? Yeah. We need, if we're going to grow this ecosystem, we're going to assess from internally. We need to increase the number of professionals yeah. that we have that can. And do the that. first
0: step of increasing the number of assessors is getting people through CCP because you know, a lot of people who yep. take CCP will never go on to be an assessor. But you can't get more assessors if they don't take CCP. So it's it's good that the CCP numbers are increasing. The number of RPs and RPOs is decreasing, which you know there could be other explanations for it. However, I remember um, you know on, on LinkedIn I even said this. I was like, listen the market dynamics for everyone waiting on the rule are not unique just to uh, organizations in the dib hesitating on getting started on their implementation of 80171. it also counts for people who are looking to participate in the cmmc ecosystem as a c3pao as good. a training provider as an rp it doesn't matter there's lots of people if you talk to matt travis and he even sort of explained it on the town hall uh, there are lots of people who express a lot of interest, lots of applications, lots of interest waiting on the sidelines, and mm-hmm. they are, too, waiting on the CMMC rule to come out in order to get started. And just like the DOD has trouble inducing that demand via voluntary joint surveillance assessments, it's, it's a hard sell uh, to get through explaining the rulemaking process and the inevitability of the rule and what's going on with the red tape and why it's taking so long and all these things in order to get somebody to say, okay, we're going to do the training now instead of six months from now when the rule is out. So uh, you know, that's another just sort of thing to to keep in mind when people see these numbers is there there's still a lot of demand and interest on the sidelines, but that rule is just it's 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 clogging things up for more than just dib organizations that need to get their certs. It also, uh, you know, starts to allow the CMC ecosystem to decay, which is something that the DOD and the AB are aware of. But, you know, we're all waiting on the rule. So
1: it's it's crazy because the headlines were like city is in flames.
0: entire city is in flames. Oh, yeah. in flames mean-
1: right. And realistically, it's some bums in an alley burning a barrel. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. like if you really dude. It, Listen, am i right or wrong though like if you if you actually took the time and invested and you read these numbers right and you saw common sense would tell you the shift is is that people are going more to a professional and that the steps are yeah. being taken for for this to go we need to go forward i mean right? we all
0: know we all know the game right negativity bias gets clicks and if you yeah. craft your headlines for negativity bias then people click on it now uh, you know within the articles they'll say hey the numbers are up over here and the look at all the things that the ab did over the last year. That was an interesting slide that they had. I mean, the Keiko exists, the badges exist, the exams exist. I mean, they've done a lot of stuff over the last year, but the headline is like, oh, it's dwindling. And so you're like, that's, I get it. I mean, that's, that's just the game that, you know, journalists tend to be in. Uh, It is what it is. So, but they, okay. So we had an extra 30 minutes of Q and A time. A couple of questions that came up were uh, particularly interesting, answered, Mm -hmm. but still interesting and worth talking about. Okay. Um, the first one that, that popped up was, how will the AB handle the DOD silent period after rule submission to OMB? So I always love when we can talk in complete sentences that are mostly mostly acronyms, right? So sure. there's three organizations at play in that question. There is the Cyber AB, there is the Department of Defense, and there is the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. Okay. Okay, so whenever any federal agency uh, does rulemaking to create a regulation the, in the federal space, a rule is a regulation. Rulemaking is regulation making, right? The process of creating and codifying regulations. Whenever any agency has to go through rulemaking, the very last step before it gets published in the federal register and then codified in the code of federal regulations is that it has to go up to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget for review like the interface directly to the administration over the executive agencies. When DOD sends their CMMC rule up to OMB, they are on a moratorium from talking about it, right? Right. And the reason for that, the reason why uh, all agencies with some, some varied mileage with DOD on this particular rule are not supposed to talk about the rule is that the rule is government policy. And so if you, uh, you know, let let the cat out of the bag in one venue and not the other, not through the official venue of the Federal Register, according to the actual official process, then people can have an advantage. Right. They can know what's coming. They Mm -hmm. can, uh, you know, uh, they can take advantage of that information asymmetry. And that causes protests once the rules come out. And that that, you know, gums things up for a long time. Sure. So. Uh, The federal government is very careful about uh, this whole process. And so once the rule goes to OMB, the agencies can't turn around and be like, here's everything we submitted to OMB. And here's what's going to happen. It has to it has to go through this process. This is just this just is the bureaucracy. Right. Right. So what's going to happen is they're going to submit the rule to OMB. OMB has like 30 to 90 days or whatever to run their review. And the DOD is not allowed to say anything. So the DOD is going to go basically radio silent on CMMC for sure. a, one to three months um, you know, here in the new year. Which, just like in 2021, when they were on a self-imposed moratorium during their big overall CMMC program review, that has some unintended consequences. Th- the biggest unintended consequence is the silence of of not talking about CMMC fuels confirmation bias for people in the ecosystem, the DIB, people on the sidelines of the the ABs and the Keiko's training ecosystem, everybody, when they don't hear the DoD talking about it, they think, oh, it's going away or something's wrong, or, you know, there's all kinds of opinions that pop up. It's it's changing significantly, right? Even though this is just, it's just a, a red tape process of going through and counting the pages or whatever. So the question is, how is the AB going to handle DOD being Ooh. silent once they submit the rule up to OMB?
1: Pick me, pick me. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, in the back, you. So, so you, 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 only guy in the audience. Um, so check <laughs> so, uh, it. So it kind of what we just got right th- this year in review. You're going to hear a lot more about the ecosystem, I believe, um, about about the the new positions coming out, the rollouts of the new you know badging system. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be anything else than that. Like, I think it's going to be more of the same of what we've heard Yeah. Um. and, and anything that's not going to be used to delay uh, the role or to um, cloud the role or a- anything in that nature. Like, it's going to be, hey, this is what's going on with the, the, the lead yeah. instructor certification. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on with the quality assurance. And I think that that's necessarily what's going to be it. And we'll probably hear a lot more about um potential upcoming events uh yeah that they may be speaking at because they cover that obviously in the meeting as well so um that's my personal hopefully, opinion hopefully i think
0: yes too march 7th and 8th huntsville alabama Check it yeah out. yeah so oh yeah and then and then the real takeaway from it is those are getting real i'm, I'm gonna work those in for the next two hours so uh yeah you know, the real takeaway strap is, in is, get used to not, it <laughs> there's not much that the ab can do right no Because they're not the DOD and they're not OMB, they are on the outside looking in of the rulemaking process like the rest of us. And just to be clear, it's not their fault. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, So the silent period of rulemaking, the how long it takes and all the things, those are all features of the rulemaking process, which is a much longer story. It's quite interesting how that has evolved. But one of the reasons why it takes so long is because The federal government, the courts, Congress, the executive, they've all bolted reviews and analyses and checks and balances and just all of these processes onto rulemaking. Because what rulemaking really is, is it is a federal agency creating law and it's going to govern the lives of American citizens. But the people who work at agencies aren't elected. And so that is a problem under the idea of democracy in general. And so in order to check that very strong power, they've bolted all these reviews, checks and reviews and checks, which is why if an agency wants to issue a regulation, it takes like nine to 24 months. It's not because it takes them that long to write the rule. It's just how long it takes for the rule to work through the process. This is the real irony of everybody saying, the rule is going to change. CMMC is going to change. and Everything's going to change. The rule's already done. The rule's been done. It's just like slowly working its way through the process. Every time it goes through a new check on this process, they aren't going through and like ripping pages out and inserting new pages. Like that's that's not how it works. The rule that DoD has in their hands right now is the policy that DoD is going to issue once it gets through all the red tape. So when you so, sort of see dod being like we can't tell you what's in the rule at a webinar but everybody goes oh it's changing you're like that's it's just not how it works but rulemaking such an opaque process like it's just most people are completely unfamiliar with it i mean i was before this whole saga started it's just there's not much the ab can do to clarify is really the answer to the question and knowing what we know from dod's treatment of their moratorium during 2021 they're really not going to explain why they've gone radio silent. I mean, we're going to talk about it a bunch, but you just know that it's going to cause a lot of confirmation bias out there. Cause people are going to go, well, I don't hear anything about it happening. So it must have gone away. And then 30 to 90 days later, the other shoe drops and then it starts to roll out.
1: It's almost like you just ruined Christmas for me, bro. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's yeah, because
1: um... <laughs> up until, up, up until I mentioned you, up until you.
0: this conversation
1: happened, right? I thought that it was kind of like when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, where like all the representatives from the independent states are in a room <laughs> yes. and they write a section a day, and South Carolina would always object. And anybody, you know,
0: anybody listening out there, please Photoshop like a, a feather quill pen in Stacy Bosjanik's hand, like handwriting dude, a, a hundred pages of CMC rules.
1: They get so, done a section,
0: they're like, "Yes, that's it. Yeah. That's exactly what we want." So, and it's yeah. a section a day, right? You know, yeah. So for people listening, right. Once DoD submits that rule to OMB after the holidays, there will be a moratorium where you won't hear anything from them. Uh, That is a feature, not a bug. It is just part of the rulemaking process. And there's not a lot that any of us can do about it except be familiar and be ready for what comes around the corner 30 to 90 days later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other interesting questions was: While NIST 80171 does not anticipate zero trust architecture, what work is the Cyber AB and DoD doing to recognize the fact that 800-171 may not be current with accepted best practices, approaches, and business use cases? So this we started one of these yesterday, right? Yeah, this is very interesting. I, I mean, I had a post about this on LinkedIn um, because it, NIST is very clear that. The requirements in eight hundred one seventy one and the principles of zero trust are not at odds. The controls in 853 from which eight hundred one seventy one is derived and zero trust are not at odds. The security engineering principles in NIST sp 800 which was just revised and released a month or two ago, not at odds with the engineering principles in zero trust architecture. These two things are not at odds and just, you know, this conversation comes up all the time people go what about zero trust and you go what part specifically what requirement specifically in eight hundred one seventy one violates the principles of zero trust which requirement in eight hundred one seventy one, or I would challenge people in 853 in general requires you to implement architectures that go against the structure and basis and just general theory of zero trust architecture zero trust Is a philosophy it is a way of implementing and enforcing sort of universal ideas of control it's much more granular access control it's lots of least privilege lots of least function there is nothing in 800 171 and by extension cmmc that forces you to use arbitrary trust relationships or perimeter oriented architectures now there are some edge cases in there with like the wording around split tunneling and things like that but that those, those edge cases in like one or two controls do not somehow toss out all of the principles that underlie 800 which are also underlying zero trust. That's, yeah, it's just I, not true. I agree.
1: I, I think that the, The thing that's that's overlooked here when people, you know, formulate these arguments is the fact that you have the power to build your assurance claim for the way that you implement something. Right. So Mm -hmm. even if there's a control where something's out there um, that you're like, oh, well, this kind of doesn't fit with a modern architecture.
0: Right. Well, then why doesn't it fit with a modern architecture? Explain it. Explain necessarily. I mean, and this is a thing. And I'm sure you saw this in CCP training. It's very common is people will go to the language in in NIST controls and they'll go what is the right answer or what am i not allowed to do and that's not how they are written they are written to be high level engineering requirements where there is a goal that is outlined and you are supposed to engineer the solution to meet those requirements and then during an assessment you are making the case that what you have engineered satisfies those requirements this is the big problem because most companies in the dib don't have someone to engineer their information system, or they have an existing information system and they didn't engineer it according to those guidelines. And so there's a big gap. You know, a lot of times they'll bring in an external service provider like us in order to do that engineering for them, because we're familiar with how those requirements work, but those answers are just not in there. But to get back to the idea that it's incompatible with zero trust or modern best practices, NIST is very clear about this. Uh, In the, 800-171-REV3 pre-draft comment request for comments that came out. They did their mm-hmm. analysis of all the comments that they got from industry, and they outline all the comments that are out of scope for changes coming up to eight hundred one seventy one. 171 And there's a bunch of them, which we'll link to. There's stuff like, 171's oriented around data confidentiality, not data availability and integrity. So don't expect a bunch of controls related to those things to be included in the new baseline. Uh, Their job is not to figure out within 800-171 software bill of materials or your costs of complying with a agency specific regulation like DFARS 7012. Also, they specifically say out of scope are uh, issues addressing technology specific implementations such as cloud-based systems, zero trust architectures, applicability to operational technology and or the internet of things. If you have those uh, things in your environment or you are planning to leverage uh, those things in your environment, it is up to you to architect those things into your environment in accordance with the requirements that are outlined in the minimum standard. And the LinkedIn post, which we'll link to, that talks about this. Talking about NFO controls again, right? Here we go. There is a control in 853 that talks about Good architecture, right? And it is a planning control, much like an SSP is a planning control. It's in the planning family and uh, the control that talks about using good architecture, laying out good architecture, making sure that it works within the context of your requirements is assumed to exist already in your environment. Because when the government was making 171, they go, you're a company that already exists, you have an information system that already exists, you're processing government data that has requirements on it that already exists. We're coming back through and saying what the minimum standard should be. So we assume that you thought about the architecture of this system. I mean, that, that's an unreasonable thing to think. Turns out that's not really how it works. So people look at the the high level goals in 800-171. My personal theory is that because the words zero trust don't show up in the standard, they go, well, this isn't a zero trust. This isn't a zero trust approach. right? And that's just not how the NIST engineering systems, engine systems security engineering approach to requirements works right. Uh, that's 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 just not how it works. But the answer to the question is they are not incompatible. Uh, we've got the quotes from NIST that will tell you that they're not incompatible. Uh, and zero trust architecture specific considerations and verbiage are out of scope for upcoming revisions. So, 800 171 will never say the words zero trust in it, probably ever. So, uh, people are going to have to you know, do some analysis on their end to connect the dots between the principles of Zero Trust and what they're asking for in 800-171 as sort of minimum high-level goals. It's an interesting conversation uh, that, you know, has sort of endless rabbit holes for technical implementations, but it is a very common misconception that the two are at odds with each other. I agree. Okay, so uh, the... the Other big AB event for the month of November was the CMNC Ecosystem Summit in Washington, D.C., which there were, according to Matt Travis, like 700 attendees, both uh, in person and online. Uh, And initially I thought, and I think what I've seen as feedback from everybody has been that the networking was really great. It was really great to see everybody, to be in person in one spot, which is always fun. Um, what, I mean, how did you, what were your takeaways from, from the event initially? Yeah, I agree with, with, with that. I think that, you know, like it was great to have
1: a forum for the people. So, so this necessarily wasn't one of those ones that's trying to educate and promote organizations looking for certification, right? It was more for the ecosystem members, the, the, the certified mm-hmm. people, the, the people that are looking to get certified. And then I participated in it. Um, the networking was great. hundred percent agree that the networking was, um, yeah. probably one of the,
0: most things one of the things that stand out the most to me um yeah and I, that's one thing you know we i mean we've heard that consistently for you know events that, that we have hosted as well uh cs2 march 7th and 8th huntsville alabama check it out if you like the networking and catching up with everybody the ecosystem That's also a great venue to do it at you know ab said that they they want to do this every year i think at the end of each year where they'll have uh an ecosystem summit which um you know i had a good time it was nice to see everybody in one spot there were uh, a couple of takeaways from some of the sessions that I found to be particularly interesting just to kind of uh footstop on the zero trust 8171 compatibility <laughs> question that came up in the AB town hall Victoria Pilateri the great and powerful from <laughs> NIST uh you know uh uh ar- architect and and uh and captain of the CUI series here 8171 171a 172 172a uh specifically brought up out of scope comments, which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And she is the one who has the quote from I was sitting right in the front row taking copious notes. Yes. (laughs) That zero, <laughs> you were making fun of me. I was just,
1: so you were Jacob. behind me, right the whole time, right? And then the, they announced that Victoria's coming up after I got my lunch and everything. And I'm like, "Where's Jacob? You know, like I'm I'm pretty sure he's excited to hear whatever she has to say." I look and like a school kid on the first day. My guy is in the front row. Like, dude, I don't even know if you lifted your head up from taking nope. your notes. No, nope. it was like six <laughs> dude, pages dude. of notes.
0: Yeah, dude. Yeah. I was. I was like, this guy is in the zone, right? It's uh, well, it's always great when you actually are able to you know hear the people who write the standards. Sort of agree what they're thinking is um and so the quote that jumped out to me was when she said zero trust architecture 853 and 8171 are quote not fundamentally at odds with each other and to, right. just to go back to what we said with the question that came up in the ab town hall not two weeks after that uh architecture is an nfo control specifically the 853 control is PL8, the eighth control in the planning family, PL8, which is called Security and Privacy Architectures, heavily references the language in NIST SP-800-160, which, surprise, surprise, just revised, just re-released. So we'll link uh, to SP-800-160. Definitely recommend that everybody at least skim through it because NIST's approach is even in 800 they do not mention Zero Trust even once. And so the controls in 853 and the derivative controls from 853 in 8171 that correspond back to the engineering principles in 8160 also do not mention zero trust. NIST's take is that the engineering principles that they outline in 8160 subsume the principles of zero trust, which I find to be very uh, interesting because when you start to run in and sort of learn more about Zero Trust, which this this book has been brought up on LinkedIn a couple of times. Uh, I highly recommend it. Zero Trust Security by Garbus and Chapman. I recommend that everybody check it out. Easy read, very well written about the sort of fundamentals of Zero Trust and how it works. Fundamentally, things like least privilege, uh, detailed and granular access control, least function, data flow. These are all the things that uh, are sort of doubled down on in zero trust. So there aren't fundamentally different controls. It's just a emphasis on a few fundamental principles that exist universally in 171, 853, so on and so forth. The catch is, is that those controls and those ideas are typically the ones that companies in the industrial base and small businesses in general tend to struggle with the most. Right. Sure. I tend to struggle with the most, which is understandable because they take a lot of time, they take a lot of effort, they take a lot of thought, they can take a lot of sort of engineering um um you know resources to, to make work. So when you hear people say, Oh, 171, right? We should we should move towards zero trust, you're like, Zero trust is the way of the future. It is a better way of architecting security to make systems more resilient, but it is dependent on the very same things that people are already struggling with. So sure. Um, not only are they not at odds, but we should maybe um, temper our expectations and not throw gas on the fire of overwhelming people because, you know, access control, least privileges function, already challenging concepts. If you start to throw a bunch of other buzzwords on top of it, or you start saying this is about the philosophy of your architecture... Uh, it's gonna it's gonna turn people off from the idea, and that's not what we want. We don't want people to to reject the idea of zero trust because they're already overwhelmed. So, for folks out there who are familiar with zero trust and what's going on, just pump the brakes a little bit here, and 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 we can all move towards this idea of engineering these requirements in a zero trust manner. But they are not they are not mutually exclusive. The current requirements with the ideas in zero trust.
1: Yeah, you you take the access control requirements that people are struggling with right now, and what you do with zero trust is you add another level of granularity to it, another level of difficulty, another wrinkle in the system, right? Mm -hmm. And so what wrinkles start causing is is for people that are trying to familiarize themselves with what they need to do to to increase their comprehension or, or whatever it may be. You start adding more things that they have to learn and more wrinkles. What happens is, is that there's more areas that are left untouched. There's more you you probably open up a lot of vulnerabilities in your system. You don't even know about. Right. And so you're going to have a dependency on some sort of provider. But the fact of the matter is, is that, like, it's a great approach. And I think it's where everybody needs to go. But yeah. like you said, it, it's got to be baby steps to the bus type deal, right?
0: Yeah. And it's and you know this is one of the reasons why people get so frustrated with NIST controls in general and their derivative requirements is that they're not specific to technologies or implementation approaches, right? They are not specific to cloud architectures or zero trust architectures or whatever architecture. They've written these controls to try to be very open-ended and flexible so that they don't get pigeonholed into specific architecture implementations because you can only revise those controls so fast. So understandably, NIST has embraced this sort of universality of fundamental principles, least privilege, least function, access control in general. How you implement those, how you engineer the system is up to the organization according to, you know, in accordance with how you want to engineer the system as long as it meets these very high level, very open-ended principles. Uh, uh, requirements. So it it's it's a kind of a catch twenty two because you're like if you wanted to have very specific cloud architecture guidance about how to implement something very specific, the guidance that you might have for sound cloud architecture ten years ago is very different than it is now, and then everybody would slam the requirements for being too specific uh, and out of date. So the 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 correction is to have them be as non specific and universal as possible. So. It's, it's not true that they are uh, at odds, um, but it is true that they don't specifically call out things like those those approaches. It, you know, related to this, DoD released their ZTA Zero Trust Architecture strategy for mm-hmm. the overall DoD enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I was actually pretty surprised at how much interest there was in this DoD strategy document. Uh, on LinkedIn and social media and things like that. There were lots and lots of people talking about it. It's an exciting idea, right? It is sort of on paper. It is a fundamental change to the way that the DoD is approaching the architecture of their information systems. Uh, they have it laid out um, over a timeline for their planned implementation and culture change and everything like that. I mean, it seems it's a good plan. I mean, we'll see how it how it rolls out in terms of what the DoD is planning on doing, um, but you know, like we said, there's there's not a lot of details for how they plan to interface their zero trust transformation and the industrial base, but the big takeaway is that the controls that they have specified in their minimum standards, not at odds with their zero trust strategy or the principles of zero trust uh, in general. You know, this was just something that I was thinking about, you know, at a high level, the, the concept of an authorization boundary or an assessment uh, boundary is different from the concept of a network perimeter and I think that a lot of times there is just my theory people might be conflating these two ideas they might be saying well you're talking about perimeter boundary perimeter boundary perimeter boundary when you're talking about these requirements but you're talking about that in the sense of where is the boundary of what you are in charge of authorizing where where is the boundary of what you control where where are these boundaries of of what's going to be assessed there has to be a theoretical limit of mm-hmm. what is being assessed even if you don't trust everything inside and outside of what you control that doesn't imply that you've created a perimeter to your network that dictates everything inside is trusted and everything outside is not trusted right this is this is an assessment and verification of requirements which could be a zero trust oriented approach to the implementation of those requirements which is a topic i'm interested in exploring in the future but i think that the the language of authorization and assessment boundaries is being mixed up with the idea of network perimeters from mm-hmm. an architecture standpoint which i don't know if that's actually true but i just have a feeling that's that that the the verbiage that we're using from the two worlds is 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 getting mixed up that's interesting so I think the thing that I took the most from this,
1: so the DOD Z, uh, ZTA strategy, obviously it's a roadmap that's planned between now and, and 2027, right? And what the goal of it is, is that, and, and this is strictly from the release, the strategy envisions a DOD information enterprise secured by a fully implemented department wide zero trust cybersecurity framework that will reduce the attack surface, true, enable risk management, better risk management, true, and effective data sharing and partnership environments, interesting and quickly contain and remediate adversary activities, right? So you're obviously centralizing everything into, into a cloud environment, right? Um, and the data sharing and partnership environments seems seems to be something that would be interesting to us. Mm-hmm. But by 2027, you, like we said, pump the brakes on ZTA implementations, baby steps to the bus. I mean, it's 2022. We're at the end of 2022. So they're talking I mean, about a
0: four-year rollout. Sounds like baby steps to me, right? It's uh, Well, I mean, DoD is one thing. Within the context of a small business in the DoD supply chain is is sort of another. I think I don't think anybody's going to tell the DoD that they should go slower if they think they can hit those numbers. I mean, go for it. I mean, they've sure. got the re- they've got the money, they've got the resources, they apparently have the uh, the desire at the at leadership levels within the Pentagon in order to drive this through DoD CIOs, which is great. But we just have to be careful whenever we are discussing the requirements in ab town halls or social media or anything like that there's just this there's just this perception that the uh that the requirements are at odds with zero trust and it's not true it's just not true so yeah. um it's just it's just an interesting idea that's what that's nist's position uh you know we've got the quotes and we'll, we'll link those over there uh as well but lots of lots of activity around the term zero trust the dod strategy you know nists 800 160 Um, it's just, it's all, uh, it's all, it's all moving that way inevitably anyways.
1: And that was just, so that was just the out of scope comments that, that Vicki touched on on her. Well, I told, I told, this is why I was in the front row, right? It was too many notes. Right. And then, so now she addressed Appendix C in the NFO controls, right? Dude, I I just want you, there was one quote and, 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 we both know what it was that was here. What was
0: it? Uh, so the, the quote was we hope that companies are doing these things. So the, the 62 NFO controls in Appendix E of 800-171 represent the controls in the NIST SP-853 moderate baseline that NIST, NARA, and DOD, when they got together and created 171, assumed that companies were already doing. Right? Correct. We talked about this in other episodes beforehand. And NIST's position is, we really hope that companies are doing these things. We really hope that you thought about your architecture. We really hope that you thought about how you're managing your external service providers. We really hope that you are doing backups. Uh, we really hope that you were doing these sort of fundamental precursors to... We really hope is, that you is, are documenting what
1: you do in of a policy course. and the procedure. Yeah, of, right? of, <laughs> of
0: course, like the, the biggest of all, right? right. That you have a documented information security program so that when someone shows up, a customer or whoever, and wants to know what's going on. They don't have to go through and test the functionality of every single thing. You can just show them the documentation for what's happening and give them an idea of what's happening in your, uh, in your environment. So like we talked about on a previous episode of all the public comments that were submitted, uh, which was, there were, I can't remember the number of submitters that submitted comments, but there were over a hundred individual points that were submitted Mm -hmm. to NIST. And outside of how much people hate NIPs or NIPs, NIPs <laughs> validated encryption, however much people hate that, the second most common recommendation was to take the NFO controls out of the appendix and tailor them into the main body of the standard. And anyone listening that is only familiar with the CMMC documentation, please go find 800 because appendix E did not get carried over into the CMMC documentation. So even though we are directly aligned with 80171, and even though all along, even since CMMC 1.0, CMMC is a program that assesses 8171, if you only read the CMMC documentation, you won't see the assumptions that are going into your assessment. And like you said, one of the biggest assumptions is that you have documented policies and procedures that you can show to an assessor. And like we've talked about the, before, the bottom line is you can't pass your assessment if you don't have those documented policies and procedures because of the functionality that the assessors are testing is supposed to be done in the context of what you've written down. And so you get into this catch 22 where you're not required to have documented policies and procedures because they're assumed, but you can't pass an assessment without them either. So they're basically still required, which is why so many people, including myself recommended that the nfo controls get tailored into the main standard that way we don't have to have this conversation a million times about how they're not in the standard but you still have to have them and they're actually required and they should have been there all along and there's these magical mystical nfo controls that are watching us all the time you know it's just it's a it's a, it's a tremendous waste of time um now to to the credit of the authors of 171 they legitimately thought that companies were doing all of these things and that by not including all of that extra verbiage in the document, they were making it, you know, smaller and less bureaucratic and less overbearing and mm-hmm. just less, which everyone would be happy about. And now it turns out uh, no one's happy about it because the assumptions didn't actually turn out to be true.
1: So not necessarily just to lay the blame solely or not even lay in blame, but uh, like you said, no credit to the authors or, or whatever it is um, for assuming that this was there. Like, like, it's totally their fault. Like, I think that at some point, like where has it been enforced? Right. What we've noticed is that people only are paying attention to the things that they're required to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So which is understandable. Yeah. So you you need to figure out a way. Why? How do you work these into the requirements? So Mm -hmm. these are assumptions. We hope people are doing these. The other thing is, is that you really shouldn't be arguing against implementing them. And the reason why you shouldn't be is because what does it incor- incorporate? It incorporates a holistic program, right? Yeah. And, and so like instead of just a, an overlay of or, uh, of controls, instead of just uh, data-centric uh, CMMC process or whatever it may be, where are you at? You're at this in- instance where you have a way to recover if something happens. You document how you do things for continuous execution of whatever processes that you have implemented it, it's just a holistic program really should not be arguing against it and it's
0: foolish to, to do so it's a i mean it's a, I mean it's not a strong case right no. and and because so many of the people who submitted comments to the, the pre-draft comments to 171 were people who have to use and deal with 171 on a daily basis and there was such a universal i was very surprised honestly but there was such a universal call for tailoring the NFOs back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm almost certain that NIST is going to consider that very heavily. And they say as much in their initial analysis of the comments. But for people who didn't participate in the pre-draft call for comments, when the initial draft of 800 171 3 comes out, according to NIST, in late spring of 2023, there will be an additional comment period. But... Uh, Victoria was very uh, clear about the fact that you can submit comments to NIST anytime you want to. You can email them and they will take your feedback, although it's not in a formal comment period, so it may be a while before they actually incorporate it. Uh, You can always reach out to NIST and give them your thoughts about the uh, requirements, which just to clarify, right, the AB and the DOD are not the leverage point over the requirements in 80171. CMMC is a program. CMMC is not the requirements. A lot of people, probably most people, that have issues with the cost and the complexity and the burden or whatever with CMMC don't have (coughs) those problems stemming from the nature of the CMMC program itself. Those issues stem from the requirements in 800-171. And so you have to go to NIST. During the NIST comment periods, or on a rolling basis, and let them know what's wrong with the standard, what you should change in the standard, what you recommend to have happen in the standard. If you go to the CMMC PMO, who's you know writing the steps and phases of a CMMC process document, right? That doesn't have anything to do with the structure and substance of the requirements in eight hundred one seventy one. So you got to go to the right leverage point in order to bring that feedback to try to see change. In the ecosystem, whatever you want that change to happen to be. There's just a lot of people that sort of throw themselves against the wall of the DOD or the AB or the town hall, and they should be doing that uh, in the NIST forum if you have a, an issue with the NIST requirements that CMMC assesses. Sure. So you talked about, you hope
1: that you, we talked about NFO controls and that we hope that as the revision, or of an of 171 when R three comes, which should be coming when.
0: So the initial draft of revision three for one seventy one should be late spring. Mm-hmm. So the final draft slash final revision should be uh you know fall or the end of twenty twenty three. Ron Ross said a couple months ago that the revisions to the CUI series, 171, 171A, 172, 172A, which correspond to CMMC level two and CMMC level three respectively. Um, They're revising those over the course of the next 18 months once 800-160 is out. 800-160 came out a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So now they are turning their efforts to revising that CUI series. Initial draft late spring. So I would say final version of 800-171-REV3 probably Q3, Q4 of 2023.
1: And so in that time for the initial public draft that's released and the final draft, what what happens? They do what? They take comments, right? Well, so
0: they'll take comments. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and and I, that's I that forum them. that
1: you were directing people to is that yeah. that's where you go in and you state your case for, for whatever you see that's changed that right. you may or may not agree with or you now, think now, you to, be,
0: to be fair to NIST, right, everyone should review their summary of their initial pre-draft comments and see what is out of scope because if you're going to roll in there and submit a bunch of comments about how much it costs to comply with DFARS that's not what NIST does either right uh there's it's it's very annoying for this to happen for people where you're like you have to go talk to this office or you got to go talk to that program or you got to go talk to this person but you know there's only so much that each one of these entities in the ecosystem actually controls and so NIST controls the language in 800-171 but there are a lot of things that are conflated with the language in 800-171 that NIST doesn't control. So sure. just keep that in mind.
1: All right. So now with that, initial public draft comes, comments come, comments are submitted. They take action on the comments. We get a final version of R3
0: yep. whenever, right? Yeah, what does, what, 2023. What does that mean on TMMC? Well, this is, this is the real spicy meatball because... CMMC is a program that assesses the requirements in 171. DFAR 7012 is the contract clause that says you need to implement the requirements in NIST SP-800-171. And DFAR 7012 is not subject to CMMC rulemaking. The mm-hmm. rulemaking that made 7012 finished in 2016. It's sure. done, it's in black and white. They received public comments, they adjudicated them, they gave their responses. It's the law at this point. And in DFAR 712 there's a specific line that says the covered contractor information system, your information system as a DOD contractor or subcontractor that is storing, processing, or transmitting CUI, your information system mm-hmm. shall be subject to the security requirements in NIST SP-800-171 in effect at the time the solicitation is issued or is authorized by the contracting officer. Most contracting officers will not issue contract mods to catch up to new revisions of 8171, so don't worry about the the last half of that sentence. If they do, you'll know about it. the The really operative point here is, in effect, at the time of the solicitation, whatever version of 8171 is in effect at the time of the solicitation is the version of 8171 that you are supposed to implement on your information system that's dealing with CY. Wait, 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 wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me. Right now, if I were to go and sit through a joint surveillance or when CMC rulemaking finalizes and I get this C3PAO, the, the requirements that I have to attach to are essentially
0: rep 2 The current version at the time of this podcast recording is 800 revision 2. So
1: and if you then... go through an
0: assessment right now, you are being assessed against the requirements in 800 revision 2. And it's corresponding 800-171A. Rev-2. And then rev 3 comes out after I've done my implementations,
1: but I haven't been assessed yet. So the requirements that I'm assessed against are?
0: Well, this is the big problem, is that if, let's say that Revision 3 of 171 comes out Q1 of 2024. For right? sure. The planned rollout for CMMC is sure. between 2023, when we expect the rule to come out, and 2026, which at, at which point... CMMC will be a contract clause requirement in all contracts. Right, they're going to slowly right. phase it into all those contracts. Well, right smack in the middle of this phased rollout, we're going to get a revision to 800-171. and barring the amount of time that it takes for the uh, for the CMMC documentation documentation to catch up, which there'll be some delay, right, a couple of months, uh, you're going to have people who in this in the back half of the CMMC rollout will be uh, assessed against the revision three of 80171, which will almost certainly be larger than the current revision two of 800 So there's a lot of people who, the longer we wait, the longer we wait, the longer we wait, the cheaper it will be, the easier it will be, the more precedent there will be, the more established assessment findings there will be. There's, it, it, it's cheaper and easier the longer you wait, which is not untrue as long as you know that the longer you wait, the higher chance it will be that you will be assessed against a larger standard in 800-171-REV3. And this brings back the idea of a, a constraint on implementers and assessors in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. There are a, a, a relatively large group of early adopters who have already gone through their transformations, already gone through their migrations, already gone through their mock assessments. They're ready to go. So when the shoe drops, they're going to jump out and they're going to get their CMMC assessments and then they'll be good to go. Everyone else is going to be standing in line for implementation and or for assessment. We just know that's going to happen. And the line sure. might be quite long because just getting ready for the assessment sometimes takes companies a year. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're standing in line waiting and then while you're standing in line, Rev 3 comes out. And then while you're standing in line, the CMMC documentation that corresponds to Rev3 is updated. And then while you're standing in line the training is updated and then while you're standing in line now all of a sudden the standard is rev 3 you're not getting assessed against rev 2 and that's going to be more time and more money more things that you can stumble on so when people make their risk determinations about how long they want to wait and when they're planning on doing things they should know that the standard is going to be bigger and if you're not in the initial group of people who makes it through, you have a higher chance of needing to do more under your CMMC assessment for the same certification while your competitors did not have to do that. They won't have to get assessed again for three years when they need to renew their CMMC certification. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty crazy confluence of events, but, it you know the the CMMC rollout is not going to prevent NIST from revising a government wide standard right that is not what they are concerned mm-hmm. with and the CM, and the NIST revision to the standards is not going to prevent CMMC from rolling out right this is a this is just how the 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 various events and and documents and programs are colliding with each other on the timeline. So, Sorry yeah. for the dead air. I took a drink of water. No, um, no, it's okay.
1: Um, so that was the Vicky Pillotary presentation. Outstanding. The crazy part about that is, is that it was what 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of information packed in it. Now, yeah, just, just to double back, right? The big takeaway from the 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 171 Rev 3 revision in the middle of the CMC rollout is ultimately sort of the, the the longer that an OSC waits to get their CMNC certification, the more it will cost and the more complex it will be because rev 3 will be bigger than rev 2. That's that's the takeaway.
1: I my takeaway is that you took six pages of notes during a 15-minute presentation. We all have <laughs> we
0: <laughs> Okay, okay. We all have our superpowers.
1: And then so that that was like during the lunch break or or, or whatever it was, but you also had a, a really really interesting time in DC because it was kind of like catch me if you can type deal, right? <laughs> Okay, so we're several weeks <laughs> removed. Story. So,
0: my overall annoyance level is much lower than it was at the time. So, uh, longtime listeners will recall in the first episode of the podcast, we talked about NDIA's Navy Gold Coast event in sunny San Diego. Great event. Lots of defense contractors, lots of folks from Nav War, Nav Air, Nav Sea interacting with defense contractors. And at the same time, There was an event going on in D.C., the Billington Cyber Summit, very great event, been running for like 13 years. And that event was full of people from DOD CIO and DOD ANS and all of the players in the Pentagon who are driving the CMMC program and making this thing a reality. They were in D.C. They were not at Gold Coast and we were at Gold Coast. And no one believes that CMMC is a real thing. Meanwhile, if you go to Billington, it's the only thing anybody's talking about. So there's a massive disconnect between the left hand and the right hand, between the Pentagon and the industrial base, which they are attempting to regulate. Right. Very similar feel in DC during the AB event because Stacey Bosjanik had a very short session addressing the attendees of the AB ecosystem. But down the street, there was a different event going on where Buddy Dees, who is now the CMMC PMO, that now that Stacy is over both the CMMC program and the DIB CS program, uh, Buddy came back and filled her old position as the CMMC PMO. Buddy Dees was there uh, along with another representative from DOD CIO. And they gave a 90 minute panel to a room of like 14 people who are all very familiar. With the CMMC program and the requirements and the rollout, they were representatives from large prime contractors. Uh, very small audience, not 15 minutes away from the AB ecosystem event, where the majority of the people who are paying attention to CMMC are located. Mm-hmm. Very, very similar vibe to left hand, right hand. Not, uh, you know, not exactly being well coordinated with putting out the information. And, you know, to get back to that idea of the rollout of 171 Rev3 in the middle of the CMMC phase rollout, I, I asked them the question. I was like, what are you guys going to do about that? Because you're not going to delay the rollout of CMMC until after Rev3 is done. And NIST is not going to delay the revision of Rev3 until the rollout of CMMC is done. So when you have this change to the requirements in the middle of your program rollout, people are going to blame you. They're going to blame mm-hmm. you. CMMC, they're going to say this is your fault. The requirements are changing. What are you going to do? And the re- the reaction from the folks in in DoD CIO running CMMC was why would they do that? Why would they blame the CMMC program for something that NIST is responsible for? We're just showing up and checking the math. Your requirement to implement 800-171, whatever the current revision is is a function of DFAR 7012 that doesn't have anything to do with the CMFC program. That's like, that's been the way that it's worked from the original version of 800 171 to revision one, right? Like nobody, nobody complained when we went from the original version to revision one and added a control. Why would they have an issue when we go from revision one uh, to revision two? And so, it was just very interesting to see the reaction because from the perspective inside the Pentagon this is not an issue but the perspective outside of the Pentagon is it's the only issue and mm-hmm. there's just if there's nothing if there's if there's one way to sum up the saga of CMMC and DFARS it is competing and conflicting perspectives of reality because everything makes sense to the folks writing the regulations and the way that it is translated and perceived in the industrial base is basically the complete opposite. Sure. And a similar question came up where people in the very small audience were talking about mismarked or unmarked CUI. And they go, we're not getting marked CUI, and that causes problems in in, in dealing with CMMC. And again, the CMMC PMO said, why are you blaming us? The, the uh, OSD INS office is the one that is in charge of the DoD's overall CUI program, they're the ones in charge of rolling out uh, marking and marking guidance and training and so on and so forth throughout the agency, and as it would percolate down the agency through requiring activities and program managers and KOs and all that good stuff. That's not the CMMC PMO. We're we're writing a document about how to run an assessment. We don't write the requirements. We don't deal with the marking. Those are all you know things at play. But you can't blame the CMMC PMO, according to them, uh, for issues that are the responsibility of a different office in the un- office of the Undersecretary of Defense. So it's um, you know it's just a very interesting uh, issue with the fact that there's a lot of like you know pointing Spider-Man meme going on where the PMO's office goes, that's the INS office, and the INS office goes, that's NIST, and NIST goes, that's the people who write DFARS, and People and they're like, well, that's the AB, and the AB goes, well, that's there's just there's just a lot of constant circle, of, right? Of crossed fingers going on, and so it, they're hard problems, right? I mean, this was my takeaway: is I wasn't expecting the the PMO to come out and go, no problem. It's it's actually going to go, blah 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 blah, and it's not going to be a big deal, and there's not going to be any second order effects or unintended consequences. the The part that I was dismayed by was that. They hadn't anticipated it, right? It wasn't that they they needed to have a silver bullet answer. It was they. This was sort of the first they had they had heard about it. What? Like, sure. Why would that be a problem? Why would people think that? Like, what do you mean that would be an issue? Like, are you sure that's the perception that would occur? And that was um, disappointing because it's going to be the perception, right? It is going to be well, even if it's a misperception, that will be the perception and. Perception is reality, right? People are going to blame the CMMC program for changes to the underlying requirements, which they are not in control of. And people are already blaming the CMMC program for issues with mismarked or unmarked CUI, which the CMMC program is not in control of, right? And mm-hmm. you know, as a bit of a preview for our, our December roll-up uh, uh, episode in the future, you know, we were in a conversation with the folks uh, who run DCMA and DIPCAC, and, you know, people brought up in this conversation that CUI isn't marked or it's mismarked. And the position of DCMA Dibcac is that's not our job. Our job is not to deal with marked or mismarked CUI. During an assessment, the assessors don't even necessarily have to deal and probably shouldn't be viewing or dealing with CUI at all. The fact that you have the CUI is a Negotiation and a process that you worked out in accordance with seventy twelve with your customer, with your KO, with your PM, with that happened long before you ran your self assessment and submitted your SPRS score and did your scoping and then your uh, self assessment in accordance with eight hundred one seventy one A. We're just showing up and checking your work. And so if right. you wait for the assessors to show up and go, "What is CUI?" It's not. That is not within the the sphere of of concern or influence of of the Dibcac Assessors. All right, so, you know, it was illuminating, but also dismaying, right? to, To know that there are many moving pieces orbiting around the CMMC program. And just like being on the outside, peering into what's going on, people on the inside who are running CMMC are also at the mercy of other programs and issues that are not necessarily under their direct control, which are sort of coming to, uh, you know, one big intersection here in the planned CMMC phase rollout. However, during that process, I gave the CMMC PMO some direct feedback because uh, what's apparently coming out at the time of this recording sometime in December before the end of 2022 is uh, what they're calling a slick sheet, a one pager of all of the free tools and services that DOD and other uh, organizations offer to defense contractors to facilitate their cybersecurity and they they're calling it this cybersecurity as a service, which as we mentioned before, uh, there's some trade-offs with calling it that because it tends to, uh, make people think that this cybersecurity as a service offering or collection of offerings satisfies their cybersecurity requirements. And that's not true. And my, my main piece of feedback during this event was please map. DOD's services and offerings to Mm 800-171A, just like we would tell any vendor or solution provider who charges money for services and tools. It doesn't matter that they're free. It doesn't matter that they're coming from DOD. Map those tools and services to the requirements, especially because the requirements in 171A are the requirements that DOD wrote. They're your Mm -hmm. requirements. They're your services. Please don't put the burden on the industrial base to try to connect the dots for you. You should be making that as easy as possible. If for no other reason, right, is to do two things. One is the services and tools offered under this upcoming slick sheet are the same ones that they they, uh, showed back in February of 2022 when the DoD CIO did a series of town halls and they showed us what they called the placemat which was the same list of the same free tools and services under Dibcs and DC3 and all those, all those organizations.
1: Which is what, it's PDNS, it's vulnerability scanning now, and it's threat intelligence reporting, right? The- yeah, there's,
0: there's several of them. I mean, they have several offerings, but they okay. satisfy a much smaller percentage of folks' overall requirements in 800-171 than people think. And so you need to map them to 171A, please DOD, Do this for the industry so we don't have to do it for you uh, because people will find out that although it's great that you have facilitated better security, it is a very small percentage of the overall requirements that are actually satisfied. The other benefit of them mapping it to 171A is it, it models what a good mapping looks like. Like we have... Spent years at this point telling people that mapping should be done to 171A. We have mapped our own shared responsibility matrix to 800-171A. We know that's how the assessments are run. We know that's how SPRS scores are calculated. And still, almost every vendor out there that has anything to do with these requirements maps it to not 800-171A. They map it just to 800-171. And that's bad because. You take their mapping, you take their word for it, you roll into an assessment, and all of a sudden you fail because you have a bunch of questions that don't get answered because those vendors and solutions don't cover those extra questions. So set the example, be the model, be a leader, connect the dots between your own requirements and your own services, and please map them to 800-171A. Now... The great part is they were very receptive to this feedback. So time will tell at the end of the month here, after this episode comes out, if they took the advice to yep. map it to 171A, because I would I would much rather have the mapping come out and be like, this is great. This is a good example of what good mapping looks like. Don't be misled by thinking that all technology solutions can solve all your obligations, rather than having to come out and be like, shame, shame, shame on DoD, for not finishing their homework, like it would just be much better if they just do just do the mapping, please.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that w- what needs to be considered here is that what they're doing is they're enabling you with the technology, there, or or whatever it may be, they're enabling you with a capability. You still, as an organization, have to identify what's being done, define how often, or you yeah. know it, it's done, yeah. and validate that it's being done.
0: Yeah, I mean, DoD says this all the time. They go, "This is not a technology problem." This is not something that you can just buy in order to satisfy the requirements. Uh, And yet, if you put out a slick sheet, one pager of services and tools that are technologies and you call it cybersecurity as a service, and you don't indicate in detail how it does not satisfy all of the requirements, you perpetuate the very same misperception that you have been warning people not to buy into. So just, I really hope they avoid that issue because I mean, we see it all the time. Anytime people bring up the other, there's nothing wrong with these services. They're great services, especially sure. because they're free. But we see it all the time. People come out anytime they come up in conversation on social media and people go, well, why don't you just do those instead? And it's because the 7012 contract clause codified in previous rulemaking says 80171 171 is a set of minimum requirements, not some set of free services from DoD. That's not going to change So using those services, even if you use every one of them, is not enough. It is great. It helps. It reduces cost. It's wonderful. But there is more to the story. And I just really hope that DoD doesn't shoot themselves in the foot like they did back in February and create this misperception that it's going to, you know, solve everybody's problems or perpetuate, not perpetuate, but tolerate subpar mappings that cause a lot more confusion uh, rather than, rather than clarity. Right, because from the perspective
1: of the OSC, if I see something um, that says that this particular free service covers this particular control, my assumption is it covers this ent- the
0: entirety of this control. Of course. But instead of, of mapping
1: it down to the things like I was saying, you still have those actionable tasks that you're gonna to have to carry out as an organization. Right. And it just,
0: and it just makes it, it just makes it so much more, it just, it's just very frustrating because you know, we'll talk to DOD, we'll talk to folks, right? We're not making up the idea that 171A is important. That's how the assessment is run. The advantage of having it mapped to 171A is you know instantly what you're getting for your money in the context of your requirements. Sure. Right? It's very, very helpful. It's very, very clarifying. If the DOD doesn't map their own services in that way, then it falls to crazy guys on a podcast Right? Who are like, you really should map it in a different way. And everybody's going to turn around and go, well, DOD didn't map it that way. And then they show up in their assessment and, you know, it doesn't go well. Just, just please map <laughs> it to 171. I don't want to record our December wrap up in 2023 and be like, we told you not to do this. So, but like I said, they were very receptive to the idea to their credit. So, um, the, that was that was very encouraging. However, another caveat to this so, set of solutions and services that they're going to put out on this slick sheet is not all of them are available to every DIB contractor. Wait, what? Like half of these uh, services are only available to cleared defense contractors under what is known as the DIB CS program. The DIB CS program has been a pilot program for a long time in order to convert it from a to a full-blown program, much like converting CMC to a full-blown program, it has to go through rulemaking. And rulemaking takes a really long time, like nine to 24 months long time <laughs> to get all of these services available to non-cleared defense contractors, which is the majority of the Dib, the majority of the people who could benefit from, free tools and services that even though they don't satisfy all their requirements, satisfies a non-zero amount of their requirements. So what could potentially happen here is the DOD takes a list of all the free tools and services. They do a crappy mapping that perpetuates bad perceptions about how much it satisfies people's requirements. And people find out that half of them that would do something against their requirements aren't even available to them for like a year or two. Just like the rollout of 800 171 3 occurring in the middle of CMMC, I have not heard anything about them waiting on CMMC rulemaking for the DIB-CS program to be made available to the rest of the DIB. So you're gonna put a document out there that says, we have tools and services that would help reduce the cost of you implementing these requirements. And you're just gonna have to know that they exist in the middle of the CMC phase rollout. So if you wait to have access to the free services, your chances of then having to do 800-171 3 go up. And you're like, the sequence is completely out of whack. So it's <clears throat> it's, a, it's a mess, man. I mean, it, the is kind of trapped here because you have to put out information about the services to make people know that they're available. I mean, you're making them available, but they they haven't gone through the rulemaking to make them available in time. To help people before the 171 Rev Three shoe drops, and they haven't mapped them to the requirements in a way that clarifies and illustrates exactly what they're getting. It's it's crazy.
1: So mapping is a, a type of a on on the on the spot correction that you could make if you were the DoD to to fix this and try to clear up the confusion. The problem is is that some of the problems that or some of the issues that they have to resolve in order to provide these services and stuff like that aren't on the spot corrections. Right. So the, after the fact or, or the things that you realize need to be remediated to kind of make this thing go smoother, you then realize it's going to take you almost
0: two years to get it out, of, you know, out the door. Yeah. And- I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the simple leverage point and the way that I described it, I was like, you know, I should have been preaching to the choir, but whatever. The simple leverage point is always mapping to one seventy one a. Do you you know the numbers of DIBCS program? How many
1: organizations uh, are in DBSS? No, I think they they may... We talked about it before. They may have changed.
0: We've got the link to the slick sheet from February Mm -hmm. uh, that we'll bring back in there, but they may change the way they describe those services when this new uh, document comes out. I think there's like 18 or 19 programs, but I think less than half of them are available to all contractors. I think the majority of them are locked behind... The Dib CS participation, which okay. you have to go through real quick I believe that's the split, but we'll have to wait and see um, when it when it comes out. So,
1: yeah, that's that's mm. an interesting number. I, I didn't even think about that. Um, you know, like to, to the comparison, like what um, portion of the ecosystem or the, does this cover, right? And yeah. so, it's, great great ideas. It, it obviously, absolutely, great, yeah. But the fact of the matter great is, tools is and that
0: services, we should have more free tools and because
1: if I'm an OSC and I'm struggling to do this, I hear that those words that you just said right there: full free tools and services.
0: Right. Cybersecurity is a service. Sign me up. I uh, have wait, cybersecurity I can, requirements. I can't even sign up. You, yeah, I give yeah. You, yeah, that, well, and so that's that's the real problem, right? The bad mapping is a much more subtle problem. The fact that you're going to say we have cybersecurity tools and services that somehow map to your requirements, but you get access to less than half of them. Have a nice day. It's like winning Uh, a free car and not having a license. You're just just like, guys, like you can't not talk about the services, but you got a real optics and timing problem on your hands because, you know, it, it, the sequence is out of order. And so you're going to just have to take that one on the chin because, you know, we're, we're going to have a CMC rulemaking happen. And some of the free tools and services that people are begging for, they can't get access to like, you know, that's just going to be it, it. It's just not going. It's not going to be a popular thing. So
1: I'm glad. And rulemaking is a now. necessary step, like especially when yeah, major changes can. are made to things, right? That 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 have um, impact on, on such a large, you know, yeah. base of people. So, so, so I mean, the way you that it,
0: you know, it's 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 hard to go back and be like, well, you should have done it this way, right? Nobody right. really likes it if anybody does no. that, but you know, the DIBCS program rulemaking should have happened before the CMMC rulemaking, so that access to the tools and services would be available to people who need to go get the cert right agree yeah right that that's just sort of the way it's playing out lots like i said lots of programs lots of people in charge of lots of different things so timing gets messed up but we'll see man at the very least just i hope they map it to 171a because that'll yep. be very clarifying and if they don't when well, I mean, we're going to talk about it in january whenever we do our december roll up but i'll be <laughs> i'll be much more annoyed in one situation than the other as the the sort of preview there so anyways yeah. Wrapping up the ecosystem uh, event in DC, Kelly Kiernan uh, is a wonderful resource. So she was running the Blue Cyber Program through the Air Force. Now she is detailed to the Department of the Navy to talk about all of the resources out there provided by DOD, provided by the NIST Manufacturing Section Partnership, Ptax, basically all of the resources that could possibly be available to organizations who need to get ready regardless of how holistic and uh, comprehensive those solutions are or are not, um, she is the sort of center of gravity for um, having collected the information about all of those tools and services. I have seen Kelly on a six hour long webinar, walking people through questions about 800 a just as the questions roll in. I mean, she's an absolute machine in terms of getting out good information. So she had a great session at the ecosystem event. We will link to all of those tools and resources. You should follow her on LinkedIn, follow her events, go and check out all the resources, but know that Kelly will be the first person to tell you that they are not a holistic solution. You have to cobble them together and they don't satisfy all of your requirements. There is no easy button solution that you can press to Check the box on all of these requirements, but it's a great place to start. So we're big fans uh, of Kelly and all of her efforts between Air Force and Navy.
1: Yeah, I really, I really liked her presentation. I, I definitely wasn't in the front row taking notes, um, but it was you know one that made me sit up in my chair. It was one you know had yeah. some wrinkles into it. Um, there were some things that like uh, it, you don't realize until you see it from the perspective of somebody in that type of position.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know it's interesting and. I, she said something that made me think about, you know, CISA, uh, DHS CISA has their list of free cybersecurity tools and services, and we'll link to those as well. But she said something that um, jumped out to me where she said, free services generally cost time, right, mm-hmm. is, is what ends up happening. And, and I think that's, that's probably true for the most part, is that the more free the tool and services, the less managed it is for you. And so it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you one way or another. Uh, so free tools and services are great. Very few free services are also fully managed. So um, I'm I'm also I'm very happy that that Kelly and her efforts from some of the DoD branches are much more upfront about the limitations of some of the services, even though they're all very very good. So we'll link all sure. that information as well. And then the the great and powerful father of CMMC, Dad. Bob Metzger himself had a excellent session uh, to kick off the ecosystem event. I always love listening to Bob. I think everybody's a big fan. I mean, he's been around. He's been around working this problem since 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 it since it it started. I mean, yeah, he predates everything. He's like like we said. The joke is he was he was introduced on stage uh maybe off the cuff as the father of CMMC, which is a meme that has just taken off in the <laughs> overall ecosystem. And uh and Bob is <laughs> I think he has mixed feelings about how popular but, uh how popular it is. I so, love it. I think it's hilarious. yeah I, I like how he plays into it.
1: Bob's a good guy, right? And, and so best. like the the fact that he just embraces it and then just goes yeah. along with it, it's great, dude. Yeah, dad's uh, here. So it, it's only my kid when it's behaving good. Like that—that that was the best one, dude. That, that one. <laughs> when so CMMC's funny.
0: getting good news, that's my kid. Oh man, it's 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 so great. But there were two points about Bob's session that I that jumped out to me. One is Bob has been very focused and very consistent over the years about the threat of ransomware, as as we all should be. Specifically, the threat of ransomware within the context of cyber insurance and right. how well 80171 and the CMMC program lines up or doesn't line up against the things that contribute to ransomware, recovering from ransomware, dealing with it, and therefore more likely to get insurance policies and or cheaper insurance policies. We did some analysis uh, several months ago when we did a uh, cyber insurance webinar with Bob uh, uh, for Summit 7. And we did an analysis that compared the requirements in 80171 to the NIST ransomware profile which is the subset of categories and subcategories in the NIST cybersecurity framework. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, like we said before, all roads lead to 853, including the NIST cybersecurity framework. You can think of the NIST cybersecurity framework as an abstraction of the controls in 853. It is a, uh, a, an interface to the universe of controls and control enhancements in 853, Mm -hmm. It takes all of the controls, splits them into high-level activities, categories, subcategories. It makes it much more approachable to understand how the different controls in the overall 853 catalog uh, line up and complement each other. But it is not a different standard. It is an abstraction of the same controls. So a point I always like to make to people. Anyways, uh, the analysis that we did took the... um, the NIST ransomware profile, so the subset of categories and subcategories that correspond to uh, dealing with ransomware uh, across the life cycle of cybersecurity in an environment, and we compared that to the requirements in 80171 requirements themselves derived from 853. So you can sort of think of CSF on one end, 53 in the middle, and then 80171 on the other end, right? Sure. CSF abstracts the entire catalog of 853. 80171 is a heavily tailored subset of 853. So, through the transitive property of 853, you can have a subset of the CSF that corresponds to 80171. NIST even has this on the 80171 page. And through the analysis, 64% of the stuff listed in the NIST ransomware CSF profile is covered by the requirements in 800-171. Most of the gaps are NFO controls, right? And a lot of the gaps are documented policies and procedures that help with things like getting insurance policies and making sure you have a documented incident response plan and so on and so forth. So the actual level of coverage to the, the ransomware profile is actually higher than 64%, but at a minimum, more than half of the stuff that NIST recommends that you do for dealing with ransomware is covered with 800-171. I mean- So that, that Delta difference is actually all NFO controls? Yeah, it's it. I mean, this reminds me of a previous episode when we talked about one of the joint security alerts that came mm-hmm. out. And you had gone back and looked through all of the joint security alerts that had been issued since DFAR-7012 came out and said that the requirements in 800-171 covered almost all of the recommendations and mitigations for all of the joint security alerts that come out of the US government. And we're
1: just clarifying here that 64% of what appears in the ransomware in the NIST ransomware profile are directly mapped to requirements within NIST 800-171. The other 30% or 36% that that remain can be
0: found in appendix C of NIST 800-171. So, I mean that implies that 800-171 rev 3 if they tailor some of those nfos out of the appendix and into the standard the coverage of rev 3 would be even higher than the sort of explicit coverage would be even higher against the ransomware profile so sure. much like zero trust is not at odds with 8171 ransomware protections are not at odds with the requirements in 8171 joint security alerts that have come out for large compromises and and, and malicious campaigns going on in the in the world not at odds with the fundamental requirements in eight hundred one seventy one. I mean, at this point, I I think we can see the pattern emerging here. So it was, it was it was an interesting point that got brought up in in Bob's session, and we'll link back to that webinar and the and that analysis as well. You and know, so, what the...
1: differentiates <clears throat> sorry these requirements from the cybersecurity advisories, from the uh, ransomware risk management framework and, and things like that, or risk management profile and things like that. What differentiates that from CMMC is what. CMMC is focused strictly on the scope of your environment as it pertains to where CUI data flows, right? Right. Or FCI data flows. Right. The difference is is that these recommendations are holistic recommendations saying your Mm -hmm. whole infrastructure, no matter what. So realistically, the cost saving measures it comes in the cmmc assessment right because you can limit the scope of your profile you can right. isolate the data and, and right I mean, like that.
0: one of the overall assumptions is that you have thought about this for your whole enterprise or your Correct. whole organization cmmc is just assessing within the context of da- the government wants assurances over about where their data is flowing which Correct. is in the larger context of your business or your enterprise and so the scope and the assessment is just focused around the data flow right mm-hmm. that that assessment boundary but for overall ransomware protections in general, right? You wouldn't want to just artificially carve out like, a, you know, this one area of your network and then just leave the rest completely, you know, for sure untreated. You one of the other one of the other topics that came up in in Bob's session was the the concept that 800 171 isn't effective against advanced persistent threats. And uh, this is a okay. So this came up in a conversation on LinkedIn as well. And that's true. 800-171 is not designed to fight off advanced persistent threats. Now, there is a lot of overlap in the sense that a lot of basic fundamentals make advanced persistent threats a lot. It makes their lives a lot harder, right? Correct. I mean, there's always going to be some universal fundamentals, but I wouldn't. Nobody would make the case that this is going to help mitigate the advanced persistent threat because the nature, the definition of the advanced persistent threat is eventually they get past the fundamentals. So... The reason 80172 exists as an enhancement to 800-171 is to deal and hopefully deal with mitigating the advanced persistent threat when that's relevant, which is what eight, which is what CMMC level 3 corresponds to. Now, within 853 specifically, NIST even explains this. They say that within the overall catalog of 853, there are three baselines: low, moderate, and high. Mm -hmm. Those baselines don't include all of the controls in the overall catalog. They are a subset of controls. And the assumptions behind those subsets are many. But one of the key assumptions is that the moderate low and high baselines are not designed to fend off APTs. If you are in a situation where you need to deal with legitimate advanced persistent threats, the rest of the catalog is supposed to be tailored into your baseline to augment that risk and treat that risk, treat that situation. So you start with the the baselines and then you supplement. We started with the moderate baseline and tailored it down to 171. And then we have supplemented it with 800-172. So 800-172 and 800-171 are, like I said, derived from 853. They represent exactly this process. So. It is true that 800-171 isn't effective against APTs. It is true that the 853 moderate baseline, 262 controls, the high baseline, who knows how many controls, not designed to be out of the box effective against APTs. There has to be supplementation. That's the entire reason why 800-172 exists. So not that Bob was making this as an argument against the validity of 800-171, but it is a common thing that comes up in conversation where people go, well, pff, you know, one seventy one isn't isn't doing enough against uh, the advanced persistent threat. That's why you have to supplement it. It wouldn't be any different if you had started with the full blown eight hundred fifty three. Like you have to go through that supplementing and tailoring process. So it's just a quick right. detail for people to keep in mind. Um, one seventy one and one seventy two. That's that's why they are. That's why they have evolved the way they have evolved. It's right in line with the normal way that eight hundred fifty three baseline selection and control supplementing would would normally work.
1: Yeah, I think that the the layout of 172, like you had mentioned, it's specifically the design to combat against APTs. Right. Um, And and it actually has an appendix within it and it's Appendix D. Right. Covers like redirection, deterrence, diversion, deception, uh, you know, preclusion, expungement, preemption. All of that negation, all these things that you would have to do to kind of combat those—that's the way that the controls are actually in the breakdown. When you map the controls of 172, um, they are categorized into what they are supposed to do: concealment, and misdirection. Yeah, if they're supposed to, you know. Yeah, I mean so- it's a,
0: it, Yeah, I mean we should probably link to the 172 page as well, and it's a whole other world once you get in there because it's a different—it's a different threat model that you're trying mm-hmm. to treat with a different set of controls, and you're just on a different—it's a different universe. Getting away from just basic assurances over being a data steward of government data. You know, now you're, now you're just in a, just a different, it's a different conversation at that point, but just a, a quick detail from Bob's, uh, Bob's talk that we wanted to, to clarify for folks.
1: Yep. So the adversary effects that are listed in 172, <clears throat> deter, divert, and deceive in support of redirection, negate, preempt, and expunge in support of preclusion, contain, degrade, delay, and exert in support of impediment, shorten and reduce in support of limitation and detect reveal and scrutinize in support of expose, uh, exposing.
0: So for people listening or watching, uh, all of those things mean money, uh, 172 and CMOC level three, very expensive, very, very expensive. So, uh, when people say 171 doesn't fight APTs, if you're in a situation where that is on your threat model, um, it's, it's, it's not cheap. So just keep that in mind. Agreed. All right. All right. So everybody's favorite day in November, not Thanksgiving, Wait. The, the anniversary of executive order one, three, five, five, six, originally signed November 4th of 2010 by president Obama, which kicked off the overall federal CUI program that we've come to know and love over the years. This is the executive order that appointed the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, as the executive agent in charge of the overall federal CUI program. They are the ones that eventually uh, analyzed and synthesized all of the various authorities that govern the protection of unclassified information and, and, and collected it into what we now call the CUI registry. NARA are the ones that uh, created the rule that was issued in 2016, 32 CFR uh, 2002, that outlines all of the structure of the federal wide CUI program. And so a lot of the um, things that are now issues with CNMC, like 800-171 being the set of minimum requirements, stem directly from that rule in 2016, which implements the Uh, guidance in Executive Order 13556. So it's always very interesting to go back in November and revisit the Executive Order and remember that it happened, uh, let's see, in 2010. And still to this day, we are uh, slowly, very slowly, but somewhat surely marching towards the full implementation of the guidance that we had uh, 12 years ago, <laughs> which is um, which is significant. So uh, it, it's interesting. We'll link to the rule in 2016, not to the, you know text of the rule in the Code of Federal Regulations, but to the explanation of the rule in the Federal register. It's much more illuminating. If nothing else, just read the introduction section to the rule it explains the philosophy of the federal government in a pretty clear wording about how the overall philosophy of the government is that the value of their unclassified data that needs to be protected does not decrease depending on the size of the organization that stores processes transmits handles that information and that is the driving policy position that causes things like the CMMC program to feel so unforgiving to small businesses because the overall federal-wide CUI program does not make concessions for the minimum protections of data for smaller and smaller organizations. So on a relative basis, it becomes more and more expensive and more and more burdensome because you have fewer resources and you have you know, just not as much time and money and expertise and influence and things to deal with uh, something like that. So uh, going all the way back to 2010, you can sort of trace that line forward and the executive order is not without its uh, critics and, um, and uh, sort of back and forth debate within the federal government. So in 2020, famously, then uh, d- the then director of national intelligence issued a memo which got out to the public that was encouraging the Trump administration to rescind executive order 13556 and just go back to using FOUO for everything, which a lot of people say this a lot, they say, well, we should just use FOUO. And while that might seem like it's a simpler issue because you don't have to deal with CUI markings, it doesn't actually fix the problem of overmarking. it's just a different marking, right? So for the flow of data into the supply chain, companies are still gonna get overwhelmed with FOUO marked data rather than just simply CUI marked data. So a lot of times that isn't as much of a change uh, as people imagine it could be, right? Uh, INSA, which is a industry group for the intelligence community in 2021 issued this report that just sort of went through and listed all of their issues with the executive order NARA issued a response. I mean, there's just this like food fight back and back and forth. Yeah, these federal agencies, they're they're quite interesting to read, honestly, about the different philosophies. What is not at debate, though, is this general philosophy that minimum requirements maintain um, their minimums regardless of the size of the organization that the data flows to most of this debate back and forth between these federal agencies and entities has to deal with making their lives easier, not necessarily making the lives easier of some far off company in one agency's sub tier supply chain. So it's just something to keep in mind as you read through them. It's very interesting to watch, but they aren't necessarily having this debate because they're concerned about small businesses. They're they're mostly having this debate because they're concerned about themselves. Um, And then most recently, most recently, the National Security Council uh, formed a interagency policy committee which is reviewing both uh the executive order over controlled unclassified information and classified information so sure that review and process and their recommendations for changes to the executive orders for cui and classified information should be out probably summer of 2023 uh, so it would be very interesting to see what their recommendations are for uh revising the executive orders uh as far as it comes up.
1: So in preparation for this, obviously, I I just did a revisit of the 12-year-old 13556, Mm -hmm. right? 12 years remembering a document. It's a little tough. We know what's included in it, what it establishes, what's it supposed to be, right? One of the things that stood out to me the most, right? There's one line within this document. If there is a significant doubt about whether information should be designated as CUI, it shall not be designated. Now, my question to you, Let's, let's go on a journey here. In twelve years since one three five five six, do you think that people are looking at documents and they're like, you know what? I'm not sure that this is CUI. We're just going to pass you off. You get the, you go in the unprotected
0: pile do or you the think, less protected. Do you think they pile, have right? a framed copy of the executive order above their desk, and they go, man, I have significant doubt about whether this is CUI, so I shall not mark it as such. No. Uh, But what we see is the exact opposite, right? Everybody's like, CUI, 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 CUI. The exact opposite behavior is the norm in direct violation of this line in the executive order. I mean, I know that it's in there, right? Right. The executive order is not very long. It's like two pages. And it says, if you have doubts about the nature of this data, it shall not be marked CUI. And everybody just they they just throw that out the window and they go it's all cui so
1: even even things that appear
0: on publicly posted websites as you discovered oh man yeah so what a what a segue so last month uh as you know we were just browsing around you know the uh domain uh there is a system known as spot es which has a public facing web page and then an internal dod pki enabled system sure. and Spot ES is a system that covers uh, troop movements. It covers DOD logistic movements, um, supply chain logistics, lots and lots of important information that is uh, obviously quite sensitive, probably mm-hmm. not classified, but certainly uh, falls under several CUI authorities. But it's not available on the public internet. You have to have a PKI enabled account. And you have to be on the other side of Nippernet, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. However, if you go to the SPOT-ES webpage on act.mil and you look at some of the documents that they have posted, like the FAQ document, or how do I make an account document, or the capability overview sheet of what is SPOT-ES, they are all marked CUI. And not only are they marked CUI, they are specifically marked CTI, a category of CUI that stands for controlled technical information on the public internet freely available for anyone to find. And so immediately you seize up and you go, oh my God, there's CTI posted on the internet. And you look through this document, there is no CTI in any of these documents. They are not CUI documents at all, right? A lot of information in spot ES on the other side of the wall, absolutely CTI. Uh, The information about what is it? And how do I make an account? And like, what phone number do I call? Not CTI. But it is still marked as such. It is overmarked. Clear example of overmarked CUI. Should have been significant doubt. Should have, shall not be designated as CUI. So we got a problem. Now, what's funny is in the standard marking box for CUI in the DoD marking system, they have a point of contact with a Mm -hmm. phone number listed. So I called it. Hmm. And they answered the phone, like two rings, and they answered the phone. Very nice person on the other end. I said, hi, hello. Um, Looking at the Spot ES website, there's a bunch of documents on here that are marked as CUI. And their response was, oh, yeah, we mark everything CUI. So if I worked in that office, (laughs) my (laughs) secret Santa gift to
1: everyone would be a frame copy of 1355.
0: Well, so I asked him, I was like, hey, man. CTI can't go on public-facing web pages, like by definition. And uh, and it, I was like, you mark everything CTI? And there was this very interesting story about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the leveraging of the spot ES system and the sudden increase in contractors getting access to the system mm-hmm. and the subsequent flow of spot ES information out of The system by those contractors and so the dod was like whoa 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 this is not information that's supposed to be out there a lot of this is cui problem was they marked everything affiliated with the spot es program as cui including things that are clearly not cui posted on the public internet so i was like uh did you do your annual cui marking training because you should really go back and change this to their credit they said thanks for letting us know Uh, That's definitely not CUI. We'll take it for action and get that fixed, which at the time of this recording, I don't even know if it's been fixed yet, but it just goes to show the default behavior of most people, because these are just people, right, who are, are making these decisions, is not in accordance with the line in executive order that it shall not be designated CUI. The default behavior, as we've seen over and over and over again, is everything is CUI by default. And then it suddenly is the obligation on the contractor or concerned citizen or whoever to reach out and be like, "Um, are you sure about this? Because I can't find a single piece of data in here that would correspond to any authority in the CUI registry Mm -hmm. that would make it CUI. Now, getting back to what we talked about earlier, not CMMC's problem, right? This has nothing to do with the CMMC program itself. Now the CMMC program is made much more difficult like it frustrates the CMMC program greatly. But this issue that we've gone through here, not the, it would under the, the jurisdiction of the PMO office for CMMC. But check it out. We'll give the link to the Spot ES webpage. Hopefully they fixed it before this po- podcast goes goes and gets posted.
1: Yeah, that's it's just crazy that they would just be like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and just mark everything CUI. We've just made that mm-hmm. decision, even if it appears on our website. And then when you call, they're like, yeah, man, uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's what we do. You know,
0: it's, it's a very same issue that happens in the classified space, where if they don't mark the data CUI, if you don't classify the information, and then the information gets out like it did in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, then there's hell to pay, right? If you yeah. overmark it, then... Uh, not not an issue because you just you just reverse that decision right, and then all of a sudden you know you 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 erred on the side of caution, which everybody knows that you're going to err on the side of caution. But the executive order doesn't say err on the side of caution,
1: but it and, also says if there is significant doubt. And the way that that's the exact the POC is erring
0: on the side of caution, right? You're yeah, erring yeah. on the side of caution to not mark things. That's just not how that's just not how the behavior works in the larger scheme of what's going on.
1: Yeah, but based on the answer that you got, there was absolutely no doubt that it was CUI in, in their eyes. It's just where oh, they released it to, you know, yeah, like, Well, it
0: wasn't it wasn't I mean, they agreed that it wasn't CUI, but their initial reaction was just so honest where they were like, yeah. "Oh, we just marked everything Yeah, uh, yeah. CUI." Of course we did it because, you know, we got we kind of got burned for not marking enough stuff CUI, so we'll just high watermark everything and then if if it turns out that it was wrong, then we'll just reverse that decision. Uh not doesn't bode well for the trend that we're seeing where we went from like CUI is not marked, CUI is not marked to everything is marked as CUI. So thanks a lot executive order for that one line. But uh, I think something got lost in in translation there. So sure. Anyways, uh, sort of last big event that came out in November that we wanted to talk about was our favorite thing, GAO reports, right? GAO reports are consistently somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 pages and they are always very insightful you know in a previous episode we had the GAO report that talked about the national nuclear security administration's revelation that they are very very interested in the CMMC program for their supply chain Um, but this GAO report analyzed DOD and defense industrial base incident reporting statistics uh, and there were some very insightful numbers that were included. I recommend everybody read the report because it talks about DOD's incident service providers that they use across the various branches. Uh, I, while on active duty, worked for Navy Blue Team, which is underneath uh, NCDoc and the overall Navy Blue Team uh, act- activity out of Virginia. So it was interesting to see them called out. Not the worst ranked. Uh, incident response provider uh, in the DoD. Happy to say, I'm glad to see they're still doing they're still doing good work. As a civilian, my first job out of the Navy was working as a watchstander on the in the SOC for uh, Army Cyber, specifically within the PACOM area of responsibility, doing all the network monitoring and incident uh, handling for classified and unclassified networks for Army installations in the Pacific. So. Also interesting to see them called out. Also not the worst performer. So uh, we're two for two here. (laughs) However, the report doesn't just talk about how DOD handles stuff internally. The report talks about um, some of the not great statistics for the Dib reporting their incidents to the DOD. So Mm -hmm. obviously the DOD has a lot of room for improvement, but it wasn't like everybody in the industrial base was... Uh, giving everything the DoD needed and they were fumbling the ball. So according to the report, the information submitted by Dib companies to DC3, the Defense Cyber Crime Center, which in the language of DFAR 7012, you are supposed to re- report cybersecurity incidents relevant to CUI mm-hmm. to DC3, right? This is the other part of 7012. One part of 7012 says implement 800-171. The rest of 7012 mostly talks about your incident reporting and incident handling post-incident access requirements sure. um, that that run primarily through DC3. So sure. the information submitted by Dib companies to DC3 was not always comprehensive or timely. They say around 20% of incident reports provided had no response or unclear responses as to whether any DoD program platform or system were involved in the incident. They just said something bad happened. We're a DOD contractor. Can't tell you what it was directly related to. Not very operationally useful information. 21% of the reports indicated it was unknown whether there was an impact to covered defense information at all. Uh, Not exactly very useful to the folks who need to make a decision about what's going on. 55% of of the reports indicated that an incident outcome A successful compromise or a failed compromise was unknown. They couldn't actually tell the DOD whether or not the incident was successful or not. They didn't know, uh, they didn't have enough context into what was going on. 51% of reports from calendar year 2015 through calendar year of 2021 were submitted more than four days after discovery. Remember the requirement in DFAR 7012 is after incident discovery, you have to report within 72 hours, right? Correct. So more than half of the responses didn't, didn't, they weren't able to do that. They weren't able to, 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 to meet this 72 hour reporting requirement. And 20% were submitted more than 20 days after discovery. Like the difference between three days and four days, not nearly as, but 20 days afterwards is a significant time, not an incident happened and we didn't discover it for 20 days, After you discovered that something happened, it took 20 days for 20% of people to report anything to the DoD, and once it was reported to the DoD, no context, can't tell if it's related to CDI, don't know what program it was related to, and this Gets back to our episode last month where we talked about DIPCAC findings. When people don't have the controls in 800-171 implemented that enable Mm -hmm. logging and auditing and reporting and activity and traceable activity to individual accounts and processes and people, you are unable to provide useful incident reporting information up to the DOD to know what to do and how to respond and how to help you, right? So they are complementary to each other. And these numbers didn't get as much press as the numbers about the lack of implementation of the controls, but they are the other side of the coin. Probably the, the most important goal is when an incident happens, that you have the data to know how to respond and how to report to enable the DoD to respond. And it is all built on these underlying requirements that we know that are have very low implementation rates.
1: So in this report, one of the things, you know how I like numbers and, and graphs and, and visuals, And one of the things that stood out to me most of all was since the implementation of 7012, or since the requirement of 7012 appearing, that the amount of incidents obviously decreased over time, right? So to the eye, we talked about numbers, how they appear to the eye, it looks like this. Then when you look into it further, right? So to the eye, it looks like that 7012 came out, people are self-assessing, and we're getting incidents reported, less incidents are happening, XYZ, right? Except... If you go directly under the graphic, it says, despite the reduction in the number of incidents due to DOD efforts, weaknesses in reporting these incidents still firmly remain. And that yeah. covers every bit of those numbers that you went into. Who knows what's going on? Right, last year, 2021, 948 total incidents reported. <laughs> in comparison, in 2015, 4,000 almost were reported. So, yeah. Yeah. are less happening? No, because what we've seen, and, and we'll cover the Microsoft Digital Defense report maybe later um, in, in another episode or, or down the road. Um, but what we see is that the number of intact attempts
0: increased. Um, it's somewhere in the ungodly. It's <clears throat> oh, like yeah. five
1: thousand a minute.
0: Oh yeah, the numbers. The numbers in the report of decreasing reporting incidents do not hold up with every report you could read about how activity is getting is increasing. And so as a result, that doesn't mean that the uh, the measures in 7012 contributed to a decrease in activity mm-hmm. because we know that the requirements in 7012 haven't been implemented. So it can't be that the re- if the requirements in 7012 were fully implemented and we saw a decrease in right. reported incidents, then you could make the case that they are contributing to lower levels of activity because security is better. Yep. The, the requirements are not implemented, yet the numbers of reports have gone down But then when you look at the details of the reporting, oh, it's because people don't have the requirements implemented to have the visibility to know if an incident happened in the first place that would then subsequently need to be reported. So it's a very, very interesting GA report. Definitely recommend everybody check it out. One of the parts that jumped out to me was DC3 officials, the defense cyber Cybercrime officials. Great folks. Definitely check out their resources. They'll be on that slick sheet that we talked about earlier that DOD is going to put out. DC3 officials said that they do not have the authority to enforce the three-day reporting deadline. Instead, officials stated that the contracting officer who oversees the individual defense industrial-based company contract is responsible for enforcing the requirement. If there is one commonality among the disparate and spread out programs, CMMC, CUI, 7012, incident reporting, it is all roads lead back to the contract. KO, job. yep. I mean, all it roads is. lead to the, the KO. The number of things that correspond to KO responsibility is absolutely crazy. And luckily, coming up March 7th and 8th, CS2 Huntsville, everybody check it out. We will have a former contracting officer who worked for the Navy explain what the world looks like from their perspective. Uh, what exactly does it look like when everybody in the world says that the KO is the one who needs to figure out all of these issues uh should be very interesting and insightful for that session so look for that announcement and that talk abstract i think everybody will find it very useful march 7th and 8th you said right i think it's march 7th and 8th yeah yeah i think that's right so we'll make sure that we have the link huntsville alabama everybody check it out rocket city